good evening. It's a distinct pleasure for me to be with you from that unnamed country <laughs> in the Middle East. Um, this church, if you know myself and my family well, you'll know that this church has a, a very dear place in our heart. My wife and I met and were married here. And this is our, uh, I won't call it exactly our church home in case any of my my friends from home in Lebanon are listening, but this is certainly our church home away from home. Uh, Countryside Bible Church is our sending church, and it's a privilege for us to go out forth from you and serve on your behalf in, uh, in a distant land. Um, and uh, God is just so kind to give us that privilege. Uh, my family and I have been back in uh, Texas and mostly at Countryside for the past six weeks, and it's just been a refreshing and encouraging time for us. And over the next six weeks, we'll be visiting several different churches who also uh, support us, and uh, then we'll be making our way back to the field. So uh, thank you for your prayers. Uh, we know that you pray for us. We, we, we sense that, and, and we can see the effects of that. And uh, it's our joy whenever we have an opportunity to tell you what God is doing there. But our, our task uh, tonight is to look into God's Word, because that's the, the primary thing. And so we're going to—if you, you can go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. Uh, I, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the, the ministry of John Piper from his books or sermons or, or other— uh, media. Uh, he's a former pastor. I won't say retired pastor because I don't think he would like that. Um, but he's a teacher and a writer, and he's written, uh, as far as I know, more than 50 books. Several of them have been translated into Arabic, which is wonderful. He's sold more than a million copies of these books, and I saw a, a video with him not long ago. I don't know if the video is recent or not, but he was explaining how they were asking him, you know, what did you do with the, the rights to these books and the royalties? What do you do with the royalties from all these books? And he signed them over to many years ago to a charity, to a Christian ministry, so that he receives nothing from those. He says, the ministries I work for, the church, and now desiring God pay me a fair wage, and um, just wouldn't feel right taking it. He could be uh, a millionaire. And there are other pastors like him and other people Many of you in this room who are just generous people, and the Lord has blessed you. Um, so we don't want to exalt him. He's just a man. But it's an example of generosity and love for neighbor that the world knows nothing about. Does he deserve, in one sense, in a human sense, to earn the monies from, the, from these books? Yes, he, he, he wrote them. But he freely chose to give because love for God and people was more important. Amy Carmichael said, you can always give without loving, but you can never love without giving. Love motivates us to give and to serve and to help. So as we mentioned, our text today is from Leviticus. This is not a book that we often turn to. In fact, it's kind of the graveyard. It's the uh, the place where Bible read-through plans go to die. Oftentimes, there's a lot of blood 
a lot of strange uh, animals and strange things to be done with animals, but that's not what we're going to look at tonight. We can consider the, the theme of the book of Leviticus to be one word, holiness. And if you've uh, been around the church for some time, you'll know what that word means, to be set apart from something, to be set apart from the world, set apart from sin. When we talk about God being holy, it also means that he is set apart, he is transcendent, he's the creator and not part of the creation. But he is also morally separate from the world, the fallen world of sin, and he calls us to be holy. He is holy, and we must be holy like him. That's why we see animal sacrifices that fill the pages of Leviticus, because something has to be done because of our sin. A sacrifice has to be made because we are not holy, but we must be if we are to have access to God. And all of these concepts point us forward, of course, to Christ and his ministry, a good companion book, if you want to read an Old Testament book and a New Testament book together, Leviticus and Hebrews go together quite well. And it explains how Christ is the fulfillment of this sacrificial system, which is why we don't practice it today. So Leviticus 19 begins with the theme of holiness, stating in verse 2 these familiar words, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So the theme of holiness pervades not just the book, but this chapter, Leviticus 19. But in verse 9, we see uh, a shift, and we see a lot of commands given about how we are to serve and help and do good toward others. And as we get to the end of the passage that I'll read in just a minute, we see what is the motivating principle, or what is the definition, the description of the summary of all of these commands, and it is, again, familiar words in the end of verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So holiness and love come together in this chapter. Uh, and I hope that we know that holiness and love are not contradictory. It's not, I'm so holy that I can't love people. <laughs> or it's not, I'm so loving that holiness doesn't matter, sin is okay. That's not the biblical description of holiness or love. No, holiness and love not only can go together, they must go together. They, they dovetail together. They fit in God and in his character, and they should fit together in us as Christians. And one of the ways that we see this is just in the, the fact of holiness meaning to be set apart, to be different. Because what does the world lack more than just about anything, love. So when we are holy, when we are set apart and different from the world, one of the most distinguishing characteristics of Christ's followers is that we are loving. That sets us apart from the world and sets us apart to God. These are not contradictory at all, but they go together. So love is the theme of our message today and how we can love one another. And if we wanted to summarize the message in a sentence, I would say you must love those around you by giving them what you owe, meeting their needs, and not taking advantage of them. Well, let's read the text together 
Leviticus chapter 19, beginning in verse 9 and continuing to verse 18. Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord, or Yahweh, your God. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of the Lord your God. I am Yahweh. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of a hired man you are not to remain, are not to remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God. I am Yahweh. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Let's say a quick prayer together and ask the Lord to teach us this evening. Father, we thank you for your word and how it speaks to us today, even though it was written so many thousands of years ago. Lord, we are blessed to hear your word, to meditate on the fact that you are holy and you are loving and you call us as your creatures to be like you and you empower us by the work of the Holy Spirit to do that. I pray that we would listen well, that our hearts would be open to hear your message and that we would be ready to respond, to evaluate ourselves and see how we may be more obedient in these areas. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we get into our, the body of the message tonight, I know this is a longer than normal introduction, but I think we, we do need to take a step back and just consider very briefly the relationship between the Old Testament law and the New Testament believer. This is a big topic and one that we're not going to uh, cover <laughs> with any thoroughness tonight, but I just wanted to remind us of a, a few things that I, that I hope you know that are helpful as we consider the Old Testament and how we can uh, be, be blessed by and how we can apply something that was written to a very different people in a very different time. A few important points. First, as Paul says, we are not under the law. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are not subject to the law under the Mosaic covenant as it was given by God through Moses to the people of Israel 3,000 plus years ago. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 9.20 and Galatians 5.18. We are not subject to the law. It is not binding on us in the way that it was in the Old Testament. The law was part of that covenant that God, an agreement that God made with a particular people in a particular time. And so there were blessings and curses that came with this covenant 
that had this law contained in it. If they were obedient, they would be blessed in the land, they would be prosperous, they would have uh, healthy families, they would live in the land and enjoy the produce of it and be at peace from those around them. This was a promise that God made to them if they were to follow his law and covenant. But if they were to be disobedient, you know what would happen. They would be kicked out of the land, which they in fact were. Seventy years in Babylon as their punishment, but God in his grace brought them back, and he's not finished with them even to this day. But we live in a different time, a different dispensation or administration, if you will. We live in the time of the New Testament or New Covenant, not the Old Testament or Old Covenant. So we don't have a sacrificial system today. You know, there are people around the world today, not just in America, but on our side of the world too, that think we should just apply the Old Testament today. But that becomes very problematic if you don't have a priesthood and a temple and a sacrificial system. So you have to pick and choose, right? That's not how God intended the law to function today. We don't have a sacrificial system. We don't live in a theocratic kingdom with God as king in the same way that they did. We will live in a theocratic kingdom when Christ returns, but that's not today. So we submit to the secular government in the civil area of life. Besides that, we need to remember that there are many differences or distances between us and them, different distances that we need to cross. We need to bridge these gaps in order to be able to understand and apply this text. They lived in an agrarian society. They were farmers and keepers of vineyards. So they had oxen and orchards. We have cars and cubicles. We live in a very different time, and it's changing all the time. I was given a water bottle, a gift today. I was given a water bottle, and it came with a USB charger. I don't know, I don't, I don't need a water bottle that I have to charge, so I'll use the water bottle. It's a great water bottle, but I, I don't think I'm going to plug it in. Um, so we live in a different society than they live. They could not imagine a water bottle in itself, much less one that you would need to charge with electricity. So we have to bridge that gap. As I mentioned, they also lived in a theocratic kingdom. In the civil society, we obey the laws of the United States of America. That's what God has commanded us to do in his word, Romans 13. And in spiritual matters, we submit to the spiritual authority of the church elders as they teach and apply the scripture. But we also need to remember of, in spite of all the differences, that Leviticus and all the law is still the word of God for us today. The law is holy and righteous and good, and it applies to us today. We obey the moral principles that God laid out in his word because he is the same. He doesn't change. He requires the same things of his people today, not in the details of sacrifices and rituals, but in the principles of love and justice. And their world, as different as it was, in the funda fundamental level is the same. Human nature is the same. So we need to just bridge these gaps. We do that with the New Testament also. We read in the New Testament about apostles. We don't have apostles today. At least we shouldn't. There are some who claim that, but that's not biblical. 
So we have to bridge those gaps. But with the Old Testament, there's just a longer distance. So we, sometimes we have to translate things. And it talks about an ox that is goring. We need to translate that to our world today and see how it can apply. And it can. And we see that in the New Testament as the apostles apply it to themselves and the people at that time. So we must love our neighbor. That is a command that applies to us today. And in this text, we see five ways to love a neighbor. Five ways to love a neighbor. And we're going to keep it real simple. The first way is don't be greedy. Each one of these is going to be a negation, a, neg a negative command. Don't be greedy. He says in verses 9 and 10, and by the way, there's 10 verses in this text. And they come in five pairs. That's how we get to five ways to love a neighbor. Each set of two verses is going to go together. And each of them is going to end with a similar phrase of God stating who he is as the motivation for our obedience. And we'll talk about that. But the first two verses, 9 and 10, tell us, don't be greedy. The command is, you shall leave the gleanings for the needy and the stranger. So this command or set of commands is dealing with the poor. How do we relate to people around us who are in need? And this is a command to be generous, not to keep everything for ourselves, but to live our lives, as it were, with an open hand. Who does all of this, to whom does all of this stuff really belong? It belongs to the Lord. So it should be no great sacrifice for us to to give it, we are re-gifting the, the, the good gifts that God has given us to other people because he has commanded us and motivated us to do that. We see the similar command in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 19 to 21. You don't need to turn there, but just know that it's there. And uh, Deuteronomy adds a few interesting details. One, it specifically mentions orphans and widows who are to be beneficiaries of this giving. And it also gives a promise of God's blessing for those who would obey. So what is this command? This command required a farmer, and many of the people at that time were, to leave some of his crops for the poor to collect. So many people in that day, they would have a farm or they would have orchards. You remember God divided up the land amongst his people Israel. And so each person had his property and when they were collecting the land, they would take the sickle and cut the stalks, and someone would come behind and collect them. He says, you don't have to get 100%. Leave a little bit as you go. Leave a little bit that's dropped behind. Don't go back and, you know, vacuum up everything that's there. Leave some on the corners, okay? You don't have to go all the way to the ditch to, to get the stuff out. Leave some for someone to come behind and collect. And this is a beautiful law, and there, there's principles we won't go into detail, but we can extract from this, which is, this is the responsibility of all the people. Everyone who had land was responsible to help their neighbor, to help those who were around them. The other great thing about this command is, is it expected those who were able to get up, go out, and work to collect food for themselves. Did this law work in the best of circumstances? Yes, it did. You see the, the book of Ruth, where there's a lot of obedience going on. There's some disobedience, but there's a lot of obedience going on in the book of Ruth between Ruth and Boaz. And 
Ruth gleans in the field, and Boaz allows it. The, the system worked. That's how God wanted it to be. His people helping those who are around them. God loves the poor, the needy, the orphan, the widow, the stranger, and we should too. We should be those who are ready to help when others are in need. Well, he ends this first command, as he does with all of them, by saying, I am the Lord, in all caps, so we know this is, I am Yahweh, your God. So there's a connection between the vertical relationship that we have with God and the horizontal relationships that we have with believers and even those who are in the world around us. And we shouldn't separate these two. God says five times, I am Yahweh. This is the name by which he revealed himself to his people in the Old Testament. I think it's beautiful that in the Old Testament, we have a personal name for God, Yahweh. In the New Testament, that does not continue. It's not used there. But we do have a personal name, Jesus. Because God is a person. He wants to be known. And he wants to be in relationship with us, just as he is in himself among the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Well, what does the name Yahweh mean? Uh, Thomas told us many times, so I hope you were listening. The name means he is. Okay, God said, I am that I am, and I want you to call me Yahweh, meaning he is. And there's a couple of things that we can learn from this. One is that God exists apart from anything else. He just is. He exists. He's self-sufficient. And therefore, he is the source of all things. He's the creator. God exists with us. He is, meaning he is among us and with us and in relationship with us. He is present, seeing what we do, and enabling our obedience. And third, God is a personal God. I don't derive this just from the, the meaning of the name, but just from the fact that God reveals himself by a personal name. He, he has a name. He has characteristics. He's not a force. He's not the energy that's in the world. He is a personal God, and he is distinct from the gods of the nations, like Baal or Baal, Ashtaroth, Mot, all of these pagan deities that were around. He said, no, I'm the real God. Call me by my name understand who I am, and because I am this way, you should be like me. You know, the false gods of the, the Canaanites and all the, the pagan nations around Israel, they were themselves unjust and unmerciful. Uh, they allowed these sins. In fact, they required gross sexual sin or, or, or violence in order to please them. Sacrifice your children to satisfy me. That's what the Old Testament pagan gods would require but Yahweh is not like that and he doesn't tolerate that and he calls us to a higher standard even today so our relationship with God is expressed through knowing he is Yahweh clearly he wants us to know who he is he wants us to respect his name as it says in in verse 12 it's indicated there and to fear him it says revere your God in verse 14. So out of respect and fear and reverence for God and love for him and a desire to be like him, that's what motivates us to love our neighbors. So we are not to be greedy. We're to live our lives with an open hand, helping those who are in need. Secondly, don't 
cheat. Don't cheat. He says, a string of commands here, you shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name. So I think this primarily deals with how we interact with people in the marketplace, in business, whether it's a client or a vendor or a coworker, uh, or even, you know, a used car salesman or a new car salesman or any business transaction that we are to have in this world, we need to keep these principles in mind. God expects that we will not steal, that we will not deal falsely, that we will not lie, and that we will not swear falsely by his name. These commands, especially those first three, all of them, they, they correspond to the, the Ten Commandments. They are an explanation or expansion uh, of them, and we see other examples throughout the Old Testament in the law. Exodus 20, verse 7, the third commandment, talks about swearing falsely, taking the Lord's name in vain. Exodus 20, verse 15, the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. In Exodus 20, verse 16, the ninth commandment, about lying or specifically perjuring, bearing false witness. And similar commands are found in the New Testament. This is not exclusive to the Old Testament, of course. God's will has not changed in these areas. Ephesians 4.28, there is the command not to steal, but instead to do what? To give, to work hard, and to be generous, and to give. And in Colossians 3.9, the command, do not lie to one another. We see the same commands, the same principles, because God is the same, and he has the same expectations for us. Well, who are we to treat this way? Who, who is this one another that we're talking about, nor lie to one another? You know, the, the, the word neighbor is used in this passage, but many words, many titles for the person we are to help is, uh, are, many are used. So who's here? We have, who are we supposed to treat righteously? The poor, your neighbor, your brother, the sojourner, the deaf, the blind, the hired worker, sons of your people, one another. This doesn't sound too narrow, too specific. There are specific words in there for specific situations, but I think God wants us to understand this very broadly. In fact, in Luke 10, when the expert in the law asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? I think he was trying to carve out a loophole for himself. You know, tell me who I don't have to love. Tell me who I don't have to hate. And Jesus, in that parable, in that story, he says, no, it's, it's the Samaritan who helped the Jew. They weren't ethnically related. They weren't religiously related. They'd never met before. He was just the guy who was standing, or rather lying in front of him, in need. That was his neighbor. That was the one he was to love and to help. You know, God saved us when we were enemies, he didn't wait for us to come to him. So when we are called to love others, as it says in Galatians, do good to all, especially to those who are the household of faith. So there's a priority for loving those of us who are brothers and sisters in Christ, but the love for people extends to all of God's creatures. 
all of the people God has made. So we shouldn't look for a way to get out of this. We should say, no, God wants me to love my neighbor, the one who is near to me, the one who is standing in front of me in need of my help. So don't be greedy, don't cheat, and number three, don't oppress. In verses 13 and 14, don't oppress. This is not a word that we use often, but it's basically don't take advantage of people. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. Pay the wages of a hired man. You shall not mock the disabled. Dealing with the disadvantaged. This could be uh, our neighbor, but probably specifically one over whom I have some kind of uh, uh, power advantage. It could be uh, an employee, one whom I'm obligated to pay, or a disabled person. Two examples being mentioned here, a deaf person or a blind person, but it could extend to uh, other sort of uh, disabilities or, or disadvantages. So this command is not to oppress, not to exploit another person, not to take advantage of that person just because I can, and maybe it's technically legal, and I have a, a, um, an advantage over that person. This is something that may not be illegal, but it is cruel and hurtful to another person. We are taking something from a person that that person deserves to have. Example, withholding pay, okay? In the country where I live, this has happened many times. Our currency has gone through a major crisis. It's lost over 95% of its value. So there's a big difference between someone who is taking his pay in the local currency and someone who's taking his pay in American dollars because basically we're paying the same for groceries in dollars that we were five years ago but in the local currency it's about 20 times more and employers will monkey with this they will take advantage of people by saying oh we're going to pay you in this currency or that currency or we're going to give you a raise but we're going to pay you in the local currency um and they'll take advantage of people or they'll withhold pay. Sorry, you know, we're just, times are tough. We'll pay you at the middle of next month instead of at the end of the month like we're supposed to. So this happens all the time. It happens in the, the U.S. as well where people who have the advantage, who have the ability, take advantage of others because they can. Even if it's technically legal, it's not legal in God's book. It's wrong. It's an offense against him. We know, especially from the New Testament, you know, those day laborers, that they would take a denarius for a day's work. You work a day, you get that money, you need that money to feed your family. And the employer shouldn't just say, well, they should have thought of that before they became a day laborer. They, they should have planned ahead. No, it was his obligation to give that money. Just because I'm le- resting uh, peacefully on my pillow you know, he and his children may be going hungry. So it is wrong for me to take advantage of someone, to not give them what is due them, especially when they're living on the margins, financially speaking. We need to consider that as those, as, you know, I and many of you in this room have many financial advantages. Not everyone lives that way. 
They need that next meal. So this day laborer, this is someone who is who's vulnerable. He's in a tough spot, and we should be conscious of that. James 5, 4, Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, or the Lord of hosts. God hears. He hears those vulnerable people crying out, and he wants us to be those who take care of those who are around us and not take advantage of them. He talks about not mocking the, the disabled, cursing the deaf. Uh, when you curse a deaf person, he can't hear you. And that may be the point. It's mocking. It, there's no advantage to it. There's nothing good about it. You're not even trying to get something out of him. You're just expressing your anger or derision of this person who has a disability but is made in God's image. This is cruel joking or stumbling a blind person. It's just pure cruelty done not to gain any advantage, but just for sadistic pleasure. As Christians, we are not to take joy in the suffering of others, but we are to weep with them, to suffer with them, and to rejoice when they rejoice, and to help. So we shouldn't take advantage of those who are vulnerable in society. Instead, we should serve them and help them without taking away their dignity. And I know Countryside is, is a church that, that has many such ministries that are ministering to people in need, whether it's a special needs ministry or international friends teaching English to those who may not have an, a good opportunity otherwise. Um, medical clinic, Barnabas builders, in many ways you all are demonstrating the love of Christ, evidencing your faith, as we've been learning in 1 John by loving and helping and serving other people and especially those who are in need. God loves the vulnerable people and so should we. He notices them and he cares for them. So, don't be greedy, don't cheat, don't oppress or take advantage. And number four, don't wrong. Don't do wrong. In verses 15 and 16, you shall do no injustice. You shall not go about as a slanderer. You are not to act against the life of your neighbor. So this would be dealings in court or dealing with another person's reputation. We are to do no injustice in judgment. When we judge in whatever scenario, whenever, whatever sphere of life, we are making a judgment or a discernment. We are never to do it in an unjust way, but we are to judge righteously and fairly to the extent of our ability, to the extent of our knowledge of the situation. We're not to show favoritism to the rich or to the poor. Nobody gets a pass. Just because you have a lot of money and, and influence in Lebanon, we have the, oh, I said that word. We have this, uh, <laughs> uh, this system called wasta, People have wasta. What does wasta mean? It means advantage, connections. You know somebody. You know a minister in the, in the government, or you know someone in the security forces, so you can get stuff done without the normal process, uh, maybe by paying a little money or just calling in uh, a favor. But that's not how we are to, to deal with things. 
We are not to deal unjustly with people just because we know someone or because they're rich and have connections or because they're poor and we just feel sorry for them. We are to help the poor, but not in an unjust way. And James 2 talks about this very specifically, about mistreating the poor in, their chur- in the church, making judgments on people based on external factors, not based on their hearts, and treating them differently from others in an unjust way. Uh, he says you're not to go about as a slanderer. To slander is to speak ill of someone. It may be something that's true, but you are doing it in a way that does, has no good effect, but only harms that person's reputation. So you have the legal court, but you also have, as we call it, the court of public opinion, right? Or maybe the court of private opinion amongst your friends and family and those whom you know. We must be so, so careful to guard and protect the reputations of other people because it's so easy to cut people down. It is so easy to speak ill of someone to, to leave a bad taste in someone's mouth about another person. And it seems so innocent, and it's so easy to do. Maybe you're sharing it as a prayer request. Maybe you're sharing a struggle with someone. But you're causing someone else to have a lower opinion of that person than they should in an unjust way. Next, he says, don't act against the life of your neighbor. This is not a literal translation, but I think it's a good interpretive translation. Literally, it says, don't stand on the blood of your neighbor. And in our Arabic Bibles, it just keeps it 100% literal. Don't stand on the blood of your neighbor. Okay, but what does this mean? It doesn't mean if you're going to kill him, do it cleanly. Okay, don't stand on his blood. That's not what we're talking about here. We're not to take this literally, but this translation is good. Don't stand against the life of your neighbor because blood represents the life. The life of a person is in his blood. So this idiom means don't act in a way that is going to harm that other person. We are not to be people who harm without a good intention behind that. If you've ever gotten a shot, the doctor, the nurse, whoever is harming you, but for a good intention. We are not to be those who harm others with no good intention behind it. Sure, there's a place for discipline, punishment, but not to hurt others. Psalm 15 talks about many of these commands that we see here in this text, um, and it sets it up in a way that David, the, the author of that psalm, the, the Holy Spirit speaking through David, is, is giving us what is required to be in God's presence, to abide in his tent, if you will. Psalm 15, I'll just read all of it. It's, it's short. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, and whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these... Forgive me. Where was I? 
He who does these things will never be shaken. So God cares about how we live. To be in his presence, we are to be holy. Now you know we do not become holy by doing good works. We don't stand in front of God on the basis of our own works. Absolutely not. It is Christ who makes us holy by his blood. So every time we come to commands in Scripture, we have the, the, the judgment of this is, I, I can't keep this on my own. I would be under God's wrath if not for the salvation that I have in Jesus Christ. But as believers, we also see these commands in Scripture that are intended to be applied to us, and we are motivated out of love for our Lord, out of relationship with Yahweh, who has revealed himself personally to us, to be obedient, to please our God, to honor him, because he's worthy. He is worthy of our obedience, of our love, and our worship. We are transformed. We can't live like the world. We can't live that old way, but we have to love. So don't be greedy, don't cheat, don't oppress, don't wrong, and don't hate. Verses 17 and 18. Don't hate. You shall not hate, you shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge. This is dealing with a different group of people, those who have harmed you those who have hurt you, those who have done intentionally or unintentionally something that affected you in a negative way. And this command really gets to the heart. Just like in the Ten Commandments, you know, you're going along and it's, you know, something that's visibly external, uh, like remembering the Sabbath or, or honoring your parents or not stealing. And then you get to, oh, you shall not covet oh, wait, 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 wait. God has the x-ray machine out. He sees what's going on in the heart. I can't just put on a show. I have to be clean and pure in my heart. I have to not desire what someone else has. In the same way here, God is reaching into your heart and saying, oh, and by the way, it matters what goes on in there too. You have to love people from your heart, not hate them, bear a grudge against them, or desire to take vengeance on them. So what do I do if someone wrongs me? The, the first response, according to Scripture, is, if possible, to cover over that sin, to, to forgive it, to forbear, to let it go. We don't have to confront people on everything wrong that they do. We don't want people to treat us that way. There are many things that people do that might hurt us that we can say it's okay, cover over it, not saying it's not sin, but we may not know if it's sin or not. It's not just saying, oh, it's okay. It doesn't matter, but we're saying I can, I can live with this, and the Lord will deal with that and help that person. I can just let it go. But sometimes, if it's a serious issue or if it's a pattern, there may be a need to speak up. And that's what we have here in these verses. It says, you, you, you are to, to speak him. You may rebuke him, and you, you must. That is a responsibility that we have to show one another areas of fault when appropriate. And, and who do we talk to about it? Well, we talk to the person who did the offense. Like it says 
in Matthew 18. You go to your brother, okay? We are to talk to that person, not everybody else around. So our first responsibility, if we see that we need to speak up, is to go to that person in private and say, I see this fault. Do you see it the same way? Did I understand the situation correctly? And call that person to live a holy life. Writer says, the truest expression of love to our neighbor, that when we see him doing wrong, we rebuke him. Okay, there's, there's those of us that, that like that. <laughs> I like to rebuke people. No, that should not be our heart's desire, but we know that if we truly love person, we will want to see them living in obedience to God, and so we call them to that. Instead of harboring bitterness and hatred against that person in my heart. You think of the example of Jacob and Esau. Did, did Jacob harm Esau when he bought his birthright off of him? Yeah. Jacob was a trickster. He was not a nice guy. Esau, from a worldly perspective, had a right to be upset. Jacob did wrong, but Esau had no right to hate him. He had no right to hold bitterness in his heart against him. So as we think about all these commands, we should ask the question, why do I act how I do? Just by way of application, I want us to think, why do I act the way that I do? First, why do we neglect to help others? What excuses do we make? Or what factors are there that cause us to neglect helping others? We may think it's someone else's responsibility. Is someone else will help out. I'm not really in a good position, and the, someone else will take care of them. Someone else will deal with it. We think we don't have time or, or money or the ability to help. That may be true, but it may also be a reason or excuse not to help when we should. Or we have this spiritual mentality of, my responsibility is to preach the gospel to this person and pray for them, whether they're a believer or 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 an unbeliever just pray for them minister to them spiritually but by all means you know not help them with any physical need these are things we need to be aware of why do we harm others why do we do that i, I think uh, one reason why we might harm someone else is because others are doing it it's just normal in the society in the culture. We get used to it. We get numb to it. We get accustomed to hearing people talk in a certain way, and we start talking that certain way. Acting a certain way, we start acting a certain way. Or it's part of our, our culture or tr tradition. You know, this is just how we are as a people. I, I hear that a lot in the, the country where I serve. Oh, this is, that works over in America, but that doesn't work here. We're, we're different. Well, the, the gospel, the, the word of God applies equally to each culture. It may be manifested differently, but we can't say, well, our culture doesn't allow us to obey this aspect of the word of God. Certainly not. Or we don't think about their situation. We don't, we don't help others or, or we hurt them because we're just not thinking about how that affects them. Or we might think that they just deserve it. They just deserve the poor treatment that they get because, you know, they didn't do what we did or they didn't make the right decisions in life that's not how we're called to be as believers in jesus christ you know he ends this text with you shall love your neighbor as yourself 
familiar, familiar words. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But I hope after surveying these commands in Leviticus, we'll see how love your, loving your neighbor summarizes these commands, this, these acts of obedience that we are supposed to perform toward our neighbors, and also how these commands unpack for us and demonstrate for us what it can mean to love our neighbors. It's not just a platitude, but it is something that has hands and feet on it. We can enact this in our lives. We can love others as God has loved us. You know, God summarized the whole law in Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Ten Commandments. And then summarized those Ten Commandments in two commandments, and you know them. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So love is the summary of what we are called to do and to be toward God and toward others. That's it. It's really that simple. If we want to flesh it out and see what it can look like, we can look in here in Leviticus. We can read the epistles. We can see the teachings of Christ and what it means to uh, act in a way toward someone else that is helpful and edifying toward them. The one another's of the New Testament. Pray for them, love them, serve them, help them, be patient with them. All of these one another commands are fleshing out this general principle of loving our neighbors. It's a call simply to love. I love the words of Romans 13, verses 9 and 10. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, we know those commands. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the summary. That's all we need to remember is that I am called to love those around me, whether they're poor or rich, friends, enemies, locals, foreigners, the person in front of me who has a need, I am called to love him and serve him by doing justice and by showing mercy. We must thank God that he loved us and that he gave us the ability to love him and others. Apart from the work on the Christ, of Christ on the cross and the application of his work to our hearts by the Holy Spirit, all of this is impossible. It's only by the Holy Spirit that we can do any of this. And we will not do it perfectly in this life. But the Holy Spirit bears much fruit in our lives and gives us love, a natural uh, love that is not from this world. I think uh, another application we can take from this is to simply marvel at God's love. God is not commanding us to do things that he does not do. He is not commanding us to have attitudes and thoughts toward other people that he does not himself have. He is the most compassionate, loving, just, merciful being in the universe. So when we see this and we think, wow, that's not how I live. This is not my natural tendency to be loving and kind and helpful toward those who are around me. That is God. 
That's who he is. And that's the only reason he saved me is out of mercy and unconditional love. This is the standard that God has set for us. And he is our perfect example. And again, as it says in 1 John, when we see him, we will be like him. That's something we have to look forward to. The ability to love my neighbor as myself. That will be fulfilled in my life when Christ glorifies me and makes him me 100% like him. I will be able to love as I should. So five ways to love your neighbor. Don't be greedy. Don't cheat. Don't oppress. Don't wrong. And don't hate. We must love those around us by giving them what we owe them, by meeting their needs, by not taking advantage of them. As believers in Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit living in us, we have the ability and the responsibility to treat others this way. We will not do it perfectly, but these works are proofs of our faith, proofs of the work that God has done us in us. He loved us first so that we also may love. We are never more like our God than when we are loving other people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you that you have called us to a high standard of love for one another. Lord, a standard that we know that on our own we could never come close to keeping. Lord, help us to be those who, who love others, who pray for them, who serve them. Especially toward those in front of us who are in great need, who don't have the advantages that we do. Especially those, Lord, who who need to know the gospel of your grace, that we may serve them and proclaim the truth about Christ to them. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ. We look forward to the day when he will return and we will be with you for all of eternity. We pray this in his name. Amen.